0: morning again. Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 14 will be our sermon text for this morning. Before we read that together, let's pray together one more time. Father, we thank you for the depth of your love for us in your Son, Jesus. We pray, Father, that more and more day by day we would see the depth of that love, that we would rest in it, that we would rejoice in it, uh, that we would uh, live by it and show it to those around us and declare it and proclaim it. We pray, Father, that now as we come to your word, that you would show us the depth of your love. uh, The depth of your love for us in your son, Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We come uh, now to the last section of 1 Peter. We've been going through 1 Peter for a number of months. And uh, we come to the final section, verses 6 through 14 of chapter 5. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. My Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Well, I have never been in a marching band or in a dance class but I would guess there would be all kinds of directions about where to put your feet and how to hold your head. I know whenever uh, I'm officiating at a wedding, someone inevitably says at some point, don't forget to bend your knees, because if you lock your knees and stand for a long time, apparently you can pass out. I remember the one time I went water skiing, which was probably about 30 years ago, uh, we were told to stand with our knees slightly bent. Otherwise, we would tumble down into the water, and I did a lot of tumbling down into the water. Uh, When watching uh, little ones learn to stand, there's a lot of falling down before figuring out how exactly to stand up. Who who knew, right, that standing could be so difficult? But this morning, we're going to talk about standing, standing firm in grace, and that is our, our theme, how to stand firm in grace. We've been looking at First Peter now for four months, or 16 weeks, or about 510 minutes and counting. And uh, there are a few great themes in First Peter. One is that we suffer in the present age. But second, that we are pilgrims and sojourners here with our eyes set not on the present age, but on the age to come. And third is that in this we are following in the footsteps of Jesus who died and was raised, who suffered and then entered into glory. So we have hope of glory because he has entered into glory. We know that that glory comes through suffering because he first suffered and then was raised. So we come to the end of 1st Peter this morning and I want you to think again with me about your suffering. What trials do you face? What difficulties? What burdens do you bear? And how do those trials make it difficult to stand firm? Well, our outline for this morning, which you can find on the back of your bulletin, is uh, stand firm in grace under God against Satan face forward and arm in arm. Stand firm in grace under God against Satan, face forward and arm in arm. First, stand firm in grace. What is the opposite of standing? Sitting, squatting, kneeling, lying down. Uh, those, of course, don't sound so bad. For Peter, the opposite, though, I think, would be to fall. This is the way Paul uses the metaphor in 1 Corinthians 10 12 in a different context, but he says, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This is why you need to stand firm. There is some danger of falling down. Suffering, difficulty, trial provide an occasion in which you might fall. And so Peter says in verse 12, starting at the middle of our text, in verse 12, He says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. I want us to ask two questions about that phrase, stand firm in it, that is stand firm in grace. What is grace and what does it mean to stand firm in it? Peter says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Well, what is the true grace of God, according to Peter? This is actually probably the easier of the two questions to answer uh, because Peter has referred to grace so often. The very word grace means gift, unmerited, freely given gift. So what is the gift of God, according to Peter? He told us back in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So, what is the grace that is now ours? The, the coming of Christ, his suffering, his glory. But Peter, throughout the letter, has teased out some of the implications of that. First uh, Peter 2.24, Peter says, Jesus Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. First Peter 3.18, he says, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And so so what is the true grace of God for Peter? That Christ died to bear our sins and reconcile us to our Father and then rose from the dead. And that he goes on to say that though we too die in the flesh, we too will live by the Spirit. So the grace of God is that Jesus died and rose that he might bear our sins in the past, reconcile us to God in the present and give us resurrection hope for the future. Well, what is the content of that hope? What does that mean? Well, again, it's, it's grace. Peter said in 13 set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is that grace? What, what is coming at the return of Jesus? Told, Peter told us that as well back in uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, that what is ready to be revealed is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This inheritance, he has said, comes through the resurrection of Jesus and is certain because God is keeping us for that day. And yet there's more. Uh, not only was Christ's coming, God's grace to us, his, his bearing sin was God's grace to us. Not only is our future inheritance grace for us, but we are stewards of grace in the here and now. First Peter 4:10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. God gives us his Son, and through his Son, he gives us forgiveness and hope and supernatural power to serve one another. So this is God's grace, his his gift of Christ, which leads to his gifts in Christ. This is the true grace of God, Peter says. Stand firm in it. Okay, so what does it mean to stand Peter uses the language of standing firm in grace. He doesn't say stand up for grace, though we should do that, standing up for the sake of God and His grace. Peter doesn't say stand on grace, though that too is true. We stand on the truth of the gospel. We build our lives on God's grace. Peter doesn't say stand by grace. That is, Standing by the power of grace, though again, that too is true and, and maybe getting closer to what Peter means. Peter says, stand firm in grace, which maybe is actually kind of an odd phrase. I think what Peter means is something that includes all of those other things, but, but is more. We stand firm in grace. That is, grace completely qualifies our standing Our standing takes place in the the realm, the world of God's grace. Um, This is is similar to what Peter says in his last two words in the letter when he speaks of those who are in Christ. To be in grace is to be in Christ. And so we stand firm in Christ. To stand firm in grace then means either to to cling to God's grace in Christ or I, I think more likely, more similar to standing by grace, we stand firm in our suffering out of the resources that grace provides. Our standing is qualified by grace. Stand firm in grace. Of course, there's no other way to stand. Uh, there's, There's nothing else to cling to in the midst of our suffering. We cannot stand in our own resources, so we cling to grace and stand in grace. Okay, well, why, why the need to stand firm? Uh, what, what is the danger to our standing? Stand firm in grace, and two, under God. Do you ever feel like God is against you? Like God might actually want you to be miserable? Are you ever mad at what God is doing in your life? I have to confess More often than I'd like to admit, I I get mad at God, maybe all the time. Now, I'm not thinking that in the moment, mind you. I'm thinking I'm mad at the driver in front of me, or I'm mad at the toys that I just tripped over, or I'm mad at the boys who left them there. I'm thinking I'm mad at the printer that doesn't seem to work right, or the insurance company that has me on hold for what seems like hours on end, but is probably more like seven and a half minutes. But you see the problem, right? Who put the driver there? Who gave me the boys who left the toys on the floor? Uh, Who is sovereign over printers and insurance companies, just as he is over presidents and nations and tomorrow's weather report? Who is sovereign over all these things? God is. One of the greatest threats to our standing firm in grace is doubting the goodness and love of the God of grace. Who is sovereign over this moment. So Peter says in verse 6 Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, the, the commentators say that this verb, humble yourselves, here is a particular form which means something like accept your humble position. The point is not that you have a choice as to whether to be objectively humbled or not. The point is, will you accept it? And Peter tells us, who is doing the humbling? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God is is the hand that brought Israel out of Egypt. God's mighty hand is his power to perform miracles, but also his power of providence. Everything happens according to the mighty hand of God. Peter's already said this back in in chapter 4, verse 19, where he said, Therefore, those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, it's true, Peter may mean something there like uh, God's will is that you should persevere in faith. Persevering in faith brings suffering. Therefore, when you suffer because of your faith, you suffer according to the will of God, as opposed to suffering for doing wrong. But even given that possibility, God is still sovereign over that suffering. Never would Peter suggest your suffering is somehow outside the loving hands of your father, as if he's saying, sorry, church, God just couldn't do anything about it. You just have to to hold on for a little bit longer. No, God is in control. He's in control of the present. He's in control of the future. And so when Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God... He means something like, accept the condition in which you find yourselves. Now, how can we do such a thing? And God is sovereign over this moment. Over my suffering, how can I trust him? How can I accept that? Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. God humbles us for a moment, but he will exalt us for eternity And Peter, of course, is thinking about Christ as he has throughout his letter, Christ's sufferings and Christ's glory, Christ who was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Jesus was humbled and then exalted. And as we walk in the footsteps of Jesus, we too undergo humbling in the hope of exaltation. Peter explains this humble condition uh, in verse seven when he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. How do we accept God's providence in our lives? We cast our cares on Him. We don't rail against Him. We don't grumble and complain. We don't fight back kicking and screaming. We cast our cares on our Father. That doesn't mean we we don't work to better our situation, but, but even if we work to make things better, we accept that it is what it is in this moment, even if we work to make it different in the future. And so, you know, where where are you anxious? Where are you, uh, where does providence seem to prick and poke in uncomfortable ways? Do you trust your father? Can you cast your anxieties on him knowing that he cares for you? Can you rest in his sovereignty in this moment by saying, God, this is in your hands. This is under your control. This is under your power. And I rest in you. If you're not sure about his care, of course, remember the cross. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, Paul says in Romans 8. God gave his son for us. He cares for you. He cares for you. Yes, his providence is mysterious, but cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. He's demonstrated his Love for you in the cross, his provision for you in Jesus. Though he may humble you, God is not against you. He will exalt you at the proper time. And so when life doesn't go your way, when life doesn't go the way you expect, the way you want, the way you feel like it should, don't don't grumble, don't complain, don't yell and scream, don't fight and argue and let your heart grow bitter. And yet don't ignore it either. Don't be stoic and just plow forward. Cast your anxieties upon Him. He cares for you. He loves you. He, he gave His Son for you. Know that. Rest in Him. Cast your anxieties upon Him. Stand firm in grace, under God, and third, against Satan. Uh, we are to be humble toward God and watchful toward Satan Sometimes we believe that we should be able to glide through life, right? We have a kind of tiptoe through the tulips mentality. Life should be easy, right? The Christian life especially should be easy. And yet, Peter is a realist, not a pessimist, by the way, but a realist. And he knows that we have enemies. Verse 8. He says, Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You have an enemy the devil. Now, a lot of people today don't believe in the devil, but I can assure you that he is real and personal. He's not a a force. He's not just a metaphor. Scripture says he is real and he is angry. Metaphors don't get angry. So Peter calls us to clear thinking. You have an enemy, a ferocious one, a scary one. He's loud and he's hungry. Watch out. Don't get caught off guard. Don't be ignorant of his schemes and so be outwitted by him. Rather, verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, now what is it that he's calling us to resist here? Uh, What is Satan actually doing? One might think that Satan is causing our suffering, in which case Peter is saying, uh, resist him, firm in your faith, because he's doing the same things throughout the world. He's causing harm and suffering everywhere. Now, there's, there's biblical warrant for that thought, right? Uh, just think about the book of Job. All of the suffering that came into his life came by the direction of the devil. So maybe Peter is warning us, your suffering, your persecution is, is demonic. So resist. Now, On the one hand, we would need to remember that even if this is what Peter is saying, even in the book of Job, Satan could only do what God gave him permission to do. And God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can handle in his strength, according to 1 Corinthians 10.13. But what would it mean to resist demonically directed suffering? I actually don't think that's what Peter is saying here. I don't think he's saying Satan is the is the, the one causing your suffering. I don't think Satan is here pictured as the cause of your suffering. It's not his oppressive work that Peter has in mind, but his deceptive work. Satan seeks to devour us with his lies. Satan is not necessarily the cause of our suffering, but he does want to take advantage of it. He's opportunistic, and he sees in your suffering an opportunity to undermine your faith. See, what is the great lie that's implied here? The great lie is that your suffering is unique. Therefore, the implication is you don't deserve it. Why is this happening to you? It's not fair. Maybe God doesn't love you after all. So Peter says, resist the devil, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He's saying, don't let Satan dupe you into self-pity and bitterness and, in the end, unbelief. Now we're in a position to answer the question, well, what does it mean to resist Satan? It means simply, as Peter says, to remain firm in your faith. We resist by believing in the goodness of God, even in the difficulties of life. Where are you tempted to doubt that goodness? Where are you tempted to believe that your situation is unique and and not fair and that you don't deserve the trials thrown at you? Watch out. The devil is crouching at your door, as God said to Cain. He wants to devour you, and self-pity is a great way in. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Eyes set on the goodness and love of your Father, even in the midst of your trials. Stand firm, in grace, under God, against Satan, face forward. And one of the most discouraging things about trials is when we can see no way out. Or worse, when we can imagine no way out. If you have suffered long, at some point you've probably asked the question, when will it all end? When will it all be over? Some, seeing no way out, no end in sight, no light at the end of the tunnel, have sought to put an end to it themselves which is how tragedies happen. But Even if despair doesn't characterize your life, if there's no future, no glory to come, well, then you've got to get yours now. And, if you're, and then your life becomes a race to get what you can while you can. And so Peter tells us in verses 10 and 11, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Your suffering is real. Of that there is no doubt, but Peter says you suffer for a little while. Now, it may not seem little. Uh, One woman came to Jesus who suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. That doesn't seem little. In the New Testament, we see people blind from birth, lame from birth, crippled from birth. In Jerusalem, there was a pool, and there were blind and lame and paralyzed people sitting around it, and a man was there who was an invalid for 38 years. And we're told that Jesus saw the man there and knew that he had been there for a long time. How can Peter say, after you have suffered for a little while... Is he just being insensitive, right? Doesn't he know? Can't he understand? Peter gets it. He knows our suffering. He has suffered for Jesus. And, of course, if tradition is correct, he would eventually be crucified for Jesus. But suffering for a little while is in contrast to our calling to God's eternal glory. Compared to eternal glory, our suffering is is for a little while. Paul puts it like this in, in Romans 8. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, For this light, momentary affliction. Hear from a man who has been beaten and jailed and, and shipwrecked at sea. And he says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Our suffering is short compared to eternity. They are light compared to the weight of glory which God has prepared for us. Peter's not belittling your suffering, he's qualifying it. saying the God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory. And after you have suffered a little while, here's what God is going to do. He's going to restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. See, suffering makes us feel broken and weak and unstable. We feel like we we don't have the resources to go on, and any minute now, everything's going to fall apart. But Peter says God is going to make you whole and strong and unshakable. Keep your eyes there. Place your hope there, and God is able to do what he says because he is the one who who has all dominion, all power is His, all authority is His. He can and will make things right. The point, of course, is not to be escapist. Uh, The point is not to pretend everything is okay. But when you are emotionally overwhelmed with life's trials, you're actually unable to face them. But when you know that this is not the end that my suffering is light and momentary and that glory is coming that's weighty and eternal, I can begin to face my situation with hope. And so I can begin to deal with it with hope. And the unshakability of my future begins to quiet my quivering legs in the present. Stand firm. Stand firm in grace under God against Satan facing forward and arm in arm. We stand firm in grace with humility toward God, with with watchfulness toward Satan, with hopefulness about the future, and in solidarity with God's people. It's it's almost cliché, maybe it is cliché to say that we live in an individualistic age. But the truth is that that is about as true in the church as it is in the world. And suffering often makes it more so. See, when we suffer, we tend to hide. Uh, we get embarrassed. We get ashamed. Maybe we feel guilty or weak. You know, we, we say things like, well, I, I don't want to sound like a, a whiner. I, I don't want to sound like a complainer. And so our tendency is just to isolate ourselves in our suffering. But you can't make it alone. I can't make it alone. How do we stand firm in grace? How do we, how do we resist the devil firm in our faith? How do we accept our present suffering and hope in the age to come? so hard and we are so tempted to unbelief, to to anger at God or to self-pity or to bitterness or doubt. We can stand firm because we don't stand alone. Uh, The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another every day so that you don't fall. See, we can stand firm because we stand together. we see this in three ways in our passage. Uh, One, we've already seen this when Peter pointed us to the same kinds of suffering being experienced by our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Now that maybe sounds nice, but it's a little bit uh, abstract for us. And so if I can be real just for a moment, right, you you don't have to go throughout the world. The truth of the matter is the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters in this room. I mean, look around you. God has given you these people, your family, as fellow sojourners and sufferers in the present age. But if we hide our suffering, if we hide our trials, if we hide our weaknesses, we stand alone because we remain unknown by our brothers and sisters in Christ. So to stand together, we have to stand naked and vulnerable, honest with one another about the ugly parts of our lives. And so as we suffer together, we stand together. Second, step back and just consider the, the letter of Peter as a whole. As Peter does, again, in verse 12, he says, By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. We need others to exhort and declare. We see that by Peter's example of writing this letter. We need others to point us to the true grace of God. We need fellow travelers who can remind us to keep our eyes on eternity, and not just podcasts and books, but real life people, people who know us, who see us. And so Peter, knowing these churches, sends Silvanus to present his letter so that there's a real person there in front of them, talking with them. And yes, there is, there is a letter of Peter, but there's also the flesh and blood Silvanus who delivered the letter and, and maybe read it aloud in those churches where he went. We need Peters and Sylvanus's in our lives to, to speak truth, to exhort us to declare the true grace of God. And third, look at the final verses, verses 13 and 14. Peter says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. You have here the the greetings, the greetings of fellow Christians, the greetings of fellow churches, uh, the church in Rome here uh, called She Who Is in Babylon to highlight that we live in exile from the New Jerusalem, just as Israel was in exile in Babylon. But even in Babylon, far from our true home, we have those who love us, those who greet us, those who walk with us. We are not alone. And this goes further. Peter says, greet one another with the kiss of love. Now, kissing in that culture was how you greeted family and, by extension, close friends, your loved ones. The equivalent today would not be a handshake, but a warm embrace. This shows that we are, we are, we are not just fellow members of a club, but brothers and sisters in the family of God. We cannot stand alone, but we don't have to. We have one another as brothers and sisters. We stand side by side together, sharing one another's suffering, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, embracing one another. We stand firm in grace, persevering in our suffering as the will of our Father who cares for us, resisting the temptations of the evil one in light of the resurrection that is to come and together with God's people throughout the world and in this womb. And so stand firm in grace, under God, against Satan, facing forward, together, side by side, and arm in arm. Stand firm. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray for the grace to stand firm in your grace. And we pray for your Spirit to be at work in us. And we pray, Father, that we would be willing to be open enough with one another open enough for it to be helpful, that we would know one another and encourage one another and exhort one another and prop one another up when necessary. Father, work this in us. By your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.